you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 72. Remember that this month we are reflecting on different psalms to understand the significance of the first appearing of Jesus Christ. And this psalm, Psalm 72, tells us that Jesus came to be king. Um, And he is the king that you and I need as son of David. So with that in mind, uh, let's read Psalm 72, the entirety of the psalm. And let's give our attention to the hearing of this portion of God's word. Psalm 72 of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures And as long as the moon throughout all generations, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, And saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence. He redeems their life. And precious is their blood. In his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually. And blessings invoked for him. All the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Well, there's a, uh, there's a fascinating phenomenon in uh, quartet singing known as the fifth voice. And I do not pretend to understand it, but I'm going to try to explain it. I said I would have Zing stand up and explain it. I'm sure many more of you here could uh, explain it better than I could. But I'm going to take a crack at it. It's a phenomenon when uh, four voices singing together in 
perfect harmony give rise to the sound of a fifth voice. It's called the fifth voice. It's interesting. It's this phenomenon where the, uh, the, the sound of individual voices give rise to this fifth element. There's this musical synergy where the total effect of voices harmonizing together is greater than the sum of the individual parts. And what I want to suggest is that something like the fifth voice can be heard in the book of Psalms when it's read as a whole, when it's taken in as a whole book. Well, while we typically read the Psalms in isolation from the others, we read them individually, the book of Psalms is more than the sum of its 150 parts. Far from being a random collection of isolated and unrelated poems, the Psalter is in fact a carefully crafted whole that is composed of five books, which are divided by these uh, crescendos of praise. There are several of these crescendos of praise found in the book of Psalms, and this is why in a lot of Bibles, at least at the end of Psalm 72, you might see the words, book three. It's, it's, it's indicating a new section in the Psalter. Uh, and here at these book divisions, so there's a lot of scholarly work being done on this today, but here at these book divisions, we, we find evidence that in the final form, the canonical form of the book of Psalms, as we have it in our Bibles, that it has been purposefully arranged to communicate a larger message. So you might think, okay, what is that message? Well, the answer, I think, can be summarized in the royal announcement that the Lord God reigns. And the way that he has chosen to exercise his divine dominion is through a Davidic son. I'll say that again, or something like that. The, the overall message of the book of Psalms is that the Lord reigns. And he has chosen to exercise his divine dominion through a son of David. This is the royal announcement that rings out like a fifth voice in the Psalter. And it's, it's worth noticing that this royal announcement is found at the beginning and runs throughout the whole. So, for example, Psalm 1 describes the blessed man who meditates upon the law day and night. And we're often prone to reading that as a psalm you know, about us, you know, what we should be like. But it is first and foremost a psalm about a royal figure. Because after all, the book of Deuteronomy, for example, we'll see this in time to come. Deuteronomy chapter 17 requires that the king of Israel, by his own hand, write down a copy of Torah and study it all the days of his life. To study it continually, to meditate on it day and night. It's exactly what the blessed man is supposed to do in Psalm 1. And this royal emphasis is even more clear in Psalm 2, which we 
reflected on earlier this month. The blessed man who meditates on the law of God day and night is also God's begotten son who has been set as king in Mount Zion. And so the book of Psalms communicates this larger message that the Lord reigns and that he exercises his dominion through his begotten son, who is the son of David. And this message comes through loud and clear in Psalm 72. And so I'd like to explore this psalm and what it says about God's king. But first, notice with me that the psalm begins and ends with a, a header and a, a footer, typically called a, a superscript and a postscript. At the beginning of the psalm in the superscript says, of Solomon. And then at the end of the psalm, you have this postscript, which uh, says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Now that raises a question. How should we read this psalm? Who, who's speaking? Who, who wrote these words? I think it's best to read Psalm 72 as a psalm written by David for his son Solomon. But more generally, this is a prayer for the royal son, that his reign would reflect God's own heart so that the people of God would flourish and that the enemy of God's people would, in the words of Psalm 72, lick the dust. There are three basic elements to the psalm. Uh, first, that, uh, <clears throat> that the king would be a man after God's own heart. We see this in, in verses 1 through 4, and then it appears again in verses 12 through 14. And then a second element of this psalm is a prayer for the kingdom of God's royal son. And we'll see this in verses 5 through 11 and again in verses 15 and 17. And then finally, the psalm wraps up with a concluding doxology, a word of praise to the Lord who does wondrous things. So let's, let's think first of all about this request for a king after God's own heart. A king who reflects God's very own heart character. In verse 1, David prays, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. I think it's important to, to notice here at the start that there is an order to the various blessings which are requested throughout this psalm. And here at the start, we discover that the preeminent concern is for the king's character. That the king over God's people would have God's own justice and righteousness. That he would ref reflect the Lord's justice and righteousness in his reign. So that what is done in heaven would be, what is willed in heaven would be willed on earth. And so the psalm doesn't begin by asking for you know, material prosperity and peace. That will certainly come later. 
But the request and the primary concern is for God to give the king his very own character, specifically his justice and righteousness. And what, what we're being led to understand is that everything else, all of the other blessings, like the people pro- prospering in the land, worldwide dominion, and the nations bringing tribute to the king, is a consequence, it is a result of the king ruling justly and righteously. And if you think about it, in the grand scheme of things, in the world of scripture, this is how God created human beings in the beginning. He he made man after his own image and likeness to rule to have dominion as his royal representative. He made humanity to flourish like the grass of the field and to fill the earth. Remember what God said in passage like Genesis 1, 26, 27 and following. After making man in his own image and likeness, he blessed the man and said, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. God has always intended to rule over the creation by the means of a royal representative endowed with his character, including his justice and righteousness. And even after the fall of man into sin, God did not give up on this original design for his earthly dominion, did he? He didn't say to to the man, well, you've, you've blown it. Uh, We're going to move on to plan B. I'm not going to rule the world through an image bearer anymore. No, he never opts for a different plan. In fact, what we learn in the gospel is that God is so firmly committed to exercising his reign on earth, specifically by means of human beings, that the image of God, the eternal son, who is the exact imprint and nature of God the Father, became a human being. I mean, think about that. God is so committed to ruling this world, the real world of flesh and and, and blood, of land and sea, of trees and plants. God is so committed to ruling this world through a man after his own heart that he himself became one in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God became a man among other things, so that the image of God, which had been all but ruined in us, might be restored in those who trust in the Lord Jesus. As Paul says to those who are now in Christ, in Ephesus, in Ephesians 4.24, put on the new self, listen to this, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul is saying to Christians Be who you were made to be in Christ and rule, and rule in righteousness. But think about about the astonishing way God has answered the prayer request found in Psalm 72, verse 1. Jesus is not merely endowed with God's justice and righteousness. He, He is God's justice and righteousness enfleshed the perfect embodiment of these divine attributes in human flesh 
and blood. He is very God of very God and true man. Davidic blood courses through the veins of the Lord Jesus who is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty right now. But as we move on in this psalm, it's also really, I think, crucial to recognize the most distinctive mark of the king's just and righteous reign. Do you see what it is? How does the son rule with God's justice and righteousness? According to Psalm 72, it is seen in his special care of the poor and needy. You can't miss this or ignore it. According to Psalm 72, when the king possesses God's justice and righteousness, the poor receive nothing less than royal treatment. When the king reflects, the son of David reflects God's very own justice and righteousness, the poor are treated like royalty. Look at verse 2. May he judge your peoples with righteousness and your poor with justice. Verse 4, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. And then verses 12 through 14, for he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. And you see, this this is how God's royal son reigns. You could say this this is his heart. His heart towards poor and needy people. God's royal son loves to show mercy to poor and needy people, and he exercises his dominion to deliver them, so much so that the Son of God became a man in order to die on a cross to take away an infinite debt. A debt that we could never possibly bear or repay. Now, to be sure, material poverty is terrible and this psalm is concerned about that but spiritual poverty is is even worse isn't it even more long-lasting in its implications and Jesus came to take away the infinite debt of sin and to give his people a share in his own riches he as the old testament puts it he brings us into his banqueting house and he sets a feast before us He gives his people strong drink and wine that they may uh, not remember their misery anymore. You think, okay, here goes Pastor Jared talking about wine. But that is exactly the description we find in Proverbs 31. I want you to, you can turn there and look at this with me for a few moments because these two passages are parallel, Psalm 72, and what we find in Proverbs 31 is a king who uses his position of authority and his own resources to lift up the the poor and the needy, to bring them out of their afflictions. Now, when we hear Proverbs 31, 
chances are we, we immediately think of the excellent woman or the excellent wife. And often, sadly, this passage is abused to try to basically beat women over the head and say, you know, you need to do better and you need to do more. Um, but we forget, we forget how Proverbs 31 actually begins with the Gavira, the queen mother addressing her royal son as a man who is about to step into his role as a king. And she reminds him that it is not for, uh, it is not for kings and it is not for men to uh, use their position, to use their authority for their own gain or for their own benefit. It is, in fact, a perversion of the highest order to ignore the rights of the poor and ignore the afflicted. And so she calls on her son to give good things like strong drink and wine to those who are in distress, to open his mouth for those who have no voice, and to judge righteously by defending the rights of the poor and the needy. And friends, the truth of the matter is that as sinful people, we are poor and needy, are we not? We are, in in the language found here, perishing in the way, lost in bitter distress. But you see, what we are meant to understand in the gospel is that Jesus is this kind of man. He is this kind of king. He doesn't waste his strength on vain things. He uses it for the sake of those who have no strength. He doesn't hoard his resources. He gives to those who have nothing. And he doesn't remain silent. He speaks on behalf of the destitute. And he shows pity and compassion by saving those who are in distress. Our life, our blood, as Psalm 72 puts it, is precious in his sight. But let's, let's tie all of this together because we've been in Psalm 72 and Genesis 1 and Proverbs 31. We were, we were made to reflect God. In the beginning, we were made to reflect God as his image bearers, but we blew it. We blew it. And this world has been filled with uh, unrighteousness and injustice ever since. But the gospel, the good news, is that God himself came down in Jesus Christ to rule, to rule in justice and righteousness and to save poor and needy people who cry out to him and all those whom he saves come to reflect him. The image of God is renewed in all those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is actually what makes Proverbs 31's description of the excellent woman such a compelling picture. If we understand that it's not just about individuals, but the woman is a figure of God's people, the incredible thing in Proverbs 31, if we pay close attention is that she reflects who he is. She is, as it were, his spitting image. As one who 
uses his strength and his resources to care for the poor and the needy and the afflicted, what do we find his excellent bride doing? Working with her hands and then opening up her hands, verse 20, to care for the poor and the needy. She is his image. The bride reflects her bridegroom. And his justice and his righteousness are seen in the way that she cares for the afflicted. And this is why he receives glory in the gates, which is actually the very center of Proverbs 31, which happens to be a chiasm. This is, this is the radical nature of God's kingdom where the poor receive royal treatment. It is a jaw-dropping reversal of the ordinary way that the kingdoms of this world operate, is it not? It's precisely what Mary celebrates in the Magnificat, isn't it? The Lord brings down the mighty from their thrones and exalts those of humble estate. Listen to this in light of what we've said. He fills the hungry with good things. And the rich he sends away empty. He is a king whose ears are open to the cries of the needy. He gives to the poor wine and strong drinks so that they remember their misery so no more. He gives his people reason to rejoice. And so as we reflect on this reality, I think a question worth asking ourselves Beloved, is, is as the bride of Christ, as the church of Jesus Christ, is this the kind of kingdom that we are seeking first? You know, in Jeremiah 22, verse 16, we're told that King Josiah, so one of the greatest of David's descendants, that he defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. Jeremiah 22, verse 16 says that Josiah judged the cause of the poor and needy, then it was all well. And then the Lord asks this question. Is this not what it means to know me? To know the Lord is to defend the cause of the poor and needy. Now think about that. If somebody came up to you and asked you the question, what does it mean to know the Lord? Would this, would this response even cross our minds? To know the Lord is to defend the cause of the poor and needy. That's what Jeremiah 22 verse 16 says. And a striking parallel in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9. Listen to what Paul says. In the context of Christians giving sacrificially, to care for others who are in need. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know, there's that language of knowing, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This is what it means to know the Lord and his royal son, Christ the King, to reflect his heart for the needy because we have experienced 
the riches of his grace. You know the riches of his grace, so you reflect his heart by giving of yourself to care for others who are in need. That brings us to the second element of this psalm. Not only the king after God's own heart, but the kingdom of God's royal son. This prayer that his kingdom would come. Just quickly here, look over verses, back to Psalm 72 and verses 5 through 11. There are these different requests. A prayer that people would flourish under his righteous rule, that his kingdom would extend from sea to sea to the ends of the earth and that his enemies would be defeated, that they would lick the dust. Now, don't don't miss the logical conjunction then at the beginning of verse 12, okay? We've just skimmed over this prayer that his kingdom would come and in verse 12, we have the reason for the request because of the king's heart. Because of who he is. Because of how he reigns. Look at the movement from verses 5 through 11. All right, just sum it up again. May he, may he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass. May the righteous flourish and peace abound. May he have dominion from shore to shore. May the tribes of the earth come and, and pay tribute to him. May his enemies lick the dust. Then verse 12. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. Do you get the gist of the prayer? May his kingdom come because he delivers the helpless when they call out to him. He helps those who have no helper. But I think, I think as we try to take this in, it raises a concern that I suspect some of us may be wrestling with. I really think that one of the challenges of reading this psalm is its sheer extravagance, if I can can put it that way. Maybe, maybe it feels like a bit of an exaggeration. It, It may seem to exceed just anything we could possibly imagine or think. It might just seem too good to be true. Psalm 72 describes the king that if we are in our right minds, we would all love to have. But but perhaps we're just so jaded by the world, uh, jaded by our experience, the, the world that we live in, that we may be tempted to look at Psalm 72 as nothing more than a piece of religious propaganda. It's just too good to be real because we've grown accustomed to being let down by leaders. We're not shocked when we're lied to or deceived. We've come to expect people in positions of authority to misuse their power, to look after numero uno and to take care of their friends while everybody else suffers for it. And and not only politicians, but sadly, spiritual leaders too. Pastors. We've we've all been disappointed by authority figures, perhaps including fathers and mothers. So it might feel impossible to hope for the kind of king described in Psalm 72. Think about this. 
Even Solomon, David's son, who was the most gloriously gifted king of Israel in the Old Testament, he turned out to be a magnificent flop. A tremendous failure. In the end, Solomon was not the king that David prayed for. And, and most of his descendants were a lot worse. And that's disturbing. And I think it should be disturbing to us that the whole story of Israel could be summed up as a story of a failure of leadership. So often God's people were, were subject to unjust and unrighteous kings who preyed upon the people and who looked a lot more like Pharaoh than a man after God's own heart. And subject to unfaithful shepherds who lined their own pockets. So ask the question as we try to take the truth of Psalm 72 in this morning. What is Christmas about? What is the significance of the birth of Jesus? And one thing we can say in answer to that question is it is God's answer to the prayer of Psalm 72. In the birth of Jesus, you have the birth of a king. God himself in human flesh who comes to rule in justice and righteousness. He established a kingdom that will stretch from sea to sea. He rules justly for the sake of the poor who call upon him. And he has crushed the oppressor. You see, the extravagant requests of Psalm 72, every single one, are yes and yes again in the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 10 and in verse 15, there is the prayer that the royal son would receive tribute and gifts from uh, far-flung representatives of the nations. And why, why do you think that the Gospels tell us about the Magi who come from the east when Jesus is born? Why this story about foreigners coming to the little town of Bethlehem to present a child born to be king with gold and frankincense and myrrh? And even today, right now, right here in our midst and around the world, wherever Christian congregations assemble, the peoples of the nations are rendering an offering of praise and giving of their resources to the cause of the kingdom. Do we have the eyes to see this? That we are personally right now participating in the fulfillment of Psalm 72. This prayer is being answered. We are Gentiles, for the most part, coming to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, bringing our gifts and laying them at the feet of King Jesus. Tribute is being given to God's royal son. In verse 8, David prays, May ye have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And, and this is exactly, this is precisely what Jesus enjoys today as people from all around the world are baptized in obedience to the king's command to baptize them as his disciples. 
In, in verse 4, we could just go on and on and on about the ways that this is being fulfilled in Christ's first coming. We haven't even talked about Christ's second coming. But in verse 4, there is the prayer that David's son would crush the oppressor. And you see, this is, this is the heart of the good news of Christmas, isn't it? That according to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman has come. And when the royal son was himself bruised upon the cross, he was crushing the head of the oppressor. And like his father, I think I said this a few weeks ago, like his father David, he used his enemy's own weapon against him. Just as David took Goliath's sword and lopped off his head, Jesus crushed the oppressor by laying down his life, by giving himself over to death for our sake. So you see, this prayer for the king has been answered beyond all telling, as we were singing earlier. And the last part of this psalm tells us how we ought to respond to this. This psalm leads us into doxology. Words of praise, joyful, exuberant, overflowing praise because God has done it. And so he puts the words upon our lips, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Would you please join me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, uh, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, because we pray all of these things in the name of your royal son, our king and our savior. Amen.